Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm excited to be here. I hope you're excited to be here. We are going to spend another week in the flesh. And, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, so, I'm so excited to, to get to next week and the week after the week after. I'm so excited, but we cannot get there until we go through this. And um, I, I just ask you to trust that, that uh, it's going to be so great when we do get there. Um, but it won't be as great if we don't do what we're doing right now, uh, last week and this week. Um, so with that, I do want to pray for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will convict each one of us um, in our hearts, Lord, of your truth and of anything, Lord, in our lives, Lord, that you would uh, desire to be recognized, uh, confessed, and eliminated, Lord, in our lives. And um, so I pray that each woman here, Lord, if she feels that conviction, if she feels uncomfortable, if she feels a prompting, Lord, I pray that she will um, receive that, take note of it, Lord, and spend the time with you uh, today and in the coming week, Lord, uh, on that issue or those issues, Lord. And um, we trust you in this. We know, Lord, that it's your desire to point these things out to us. And I pray that we will receive it from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so there is a lot of material today, so I am going to just jump right in. And um, let's start with our, mem- our uh, memory and foundational verses, if you'll read along with me. John 10, 10. I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. John 15, 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And Philippians 2, 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act, in order to fulfill his good purpose. And I do want to look at our summary from last week quickly. Man, created flesh and spirit, was meant to be dependent on our creator God for all life, soul, spirit, and body, receiving all the abundance of his provision according to his will, trusting his wisdom and goodness, and sharing in his fellowship. And we were made to have intimate relationship with God through our spirit. The flesh is nothing without the spirit. The power of sin entered the world through self-gratifying, disobedient acts of the flesh. And the power of sin works in all men's hearts, prompting us daily to satisfy the desires of our flesh lived by our own provision, our own will, and our own wisdom apart from God. And then a quick review of our definition of flesh in the context of this study from the Greek, appetites or desires of our body and soul, which is constituted of our physical body, our thought and reason, our will and emotion and therefore merely of human origin or empowerment. So to be in the flesh is to be acting out of human desires and in human effort. Okay, that's all the review. Um, Kay Smith, the wife of the late Pastor Chuck Smith, who founded the Calvary Chapel movement in Southern California, had the following to say about being in the flesh. What does it mean to be in the flesh? We know what it means for those who are not Christians, for those still controlled by Satan who exist in a kingdom of darkness. But what does it mean for a Christian to be in the flesh? My husband, Chuck Smith, defined it as living with your bodily appetite as the top priority in life. 
Those who claim to love Jesus but live after the flesh are often called carnal Christians. And theologians have argued for years about whether or not it's possible for someone to be a Christian and yet be carnal at the same time. It seems pretty clear to me. If you look at the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, you will see that five were wise and five were foolish. Five were prepared for the coming of the bridegroom and five weren't. I would call the five unprepared virgins carnal Christians. Instead of focusing on their coming bridegroom, they were walking after their own desires. And that is how the fleshly Christian lives, day in and day out, always being led by their own impulses. Well, we said in the first week that it was very important that we understand and recognize these appetites and impulses in our own lives, and especially because they can be so deceptive and so disguised. So let's uh, look deeper in each of the areas. Um, The lust of the eyes, that desire to possess. Proverbs 27.20 says, Never satisfied are the eyes of man. And I'm, I'm confident we have all experienced the truth of that at some point in our lives. But apart from the obvious um, thing that we might look at with lust in our eyes that is forbidden by God, um, I want to look at some of the more subtle things. And so what do we look at um, with that desire to possess uh, the things of this world which God uh, has not provided for us or may not be in his will for us? Well, there's certainly the temptation to look at the endless accumulation of stuff with which we fill our homes and garages and the insatiable desire for more, better, and newer possessions, which ensnares us and hardens our hearts to the things of God. And you know, it can harden our hearts because we think, I can acquire all these things for myself. I don't need God. Or more, it can harden our hearts because we look at those things and think, you know, God's not giving me those things, and I want those things. You know, and isn't that what, it, what uh, Satan tried with Eve, Right? God's not really, you know, good. He's not really giving you his abundance because, look, he's forbidden you to have that one fruit. Well, what else um, might we look upon with the desire to possess in this world? You know, some things are intangible. Um, And I'm not offering solutions today. That's next week and the week after. You know, today we're just going to have to be a little uncomfortable. Um, Do we look at maybe someone's email with a desire to possess knowledge that is not in God's will for us to have? Or possibly do we look at the things of Facebook or Pinterest with that desire to possess? And at what point does it become idolatry? And you know, the answer to that may be different for each one of us here. God may have no problem with you spending the time you tell him on Facebook, but for someone else, it may be a problem, and it may not be his will for you. And only you can answer these questions for yourself, and that's the purpose of this. So if you feel that little conviction you know, in you, if you feel that little prick, uh, that's the Holy Spirit. Make a note of that. Spend some time with the Lord on that this week. Well, the appetites of our bodies are often associated with food. Again, the same way that Eve and even Jesus were tempted to feed their bodies. But we know that food itself is not the problem, right? God made food, it's good, and it's necessary for us. But when we obtain it, or consume it, or hoard it, or even forsake it in self-gratifying ways, apart from what God intended, we are acting in our flesh. And we're all familiar with the verses, no doubt, in, in Scripture uh, to not get drunk on wine, to not be gluttonous eaters. 
You know, it's not the wine and it's not the, the food that's the problem. It's the excess that we allow ourselves, that God did not intend for us, that is not healthy for us. You know, when you eat to excess, apart from, you know, maybe some of the ensuing health problems, but have you ever noticed how, you know, you're so full that you just can't function? You know, that's that post-Thanksgiving feast, and Thanksgiving is perhaps a special case. Maybe I shouldn't even mention that, but um, <laughs> maybe we're allowed that one day of feast. But, but, uh, but have you ever eaten to excess, and then just like, uh, all you want to do is go lay down? You know, and you can't think, and you can't function, and what are you not available for, you know, in that time? Because now you're just, uh, you know, you, you're physically just, you know, not, uh, not present. Um, and, and God knows those things, right? And that's why he, he puts limits on us. And again, a different limit maybe for some than for others. Well, a number of, of things that we desire um, can actually feel satisfying. And the Bible uses the imagery of food often to describe various acts of the flesh. And, and one very um, obvious one is Proverbs 18 and 26 that says, The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. Now, have you ever been on the receiving end of gossip or shared some gossip? And just, you know, there's a feeling there, right? That just feels good. For a little while, anyway. You know, and, and there are many references in Scripture to this. Um, one that I uh, uh, memorized a long time ago is also from Proverbs 18. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Good fruit or bad fruit? Are you building up or are you tearing down? But if you love your words, you love to use your words, you will eat that fruit. You will experience the fruit. Well, another one um, is Proverbs 23. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. I think there's an, an obvious and a very literal application here, perhaps in Solomon's time, more so maybe than ours. But God showed me, who is the ruler of this world? You know, it's Satan. You know, do not sit down before what he has spread before you and desire those delicacies, for they are deceptive food. There are, um, <clears throat> there are a number of other acts of the flesh, and we saw those in our homework. And I'm going to be addressing some of those today. And these are going to be you know, some of my thoughts about the more subtle ways that our flesh can uh, deceive us. Um, some of those desires, I hope that you're able to spend some time and, that, and let the Lord minister to you through that homework about what some of the things are that motivate you and motivate your flesh. Um, but when we think about these, and because I like the word, because I told you last time as well, I like the word appetite, because, you know, thinking that how does it make us feel? You know, forget how we reason, because our reason can be so deceptive, but how does it make us feel? And Jesus tells us that um, these things come from inside, and so we're accountable for them. So we saw the Acts in Galatians, the ones he listed in Mark for us, I also added uh, Colossians 3.8 because it included the word anger and wrath. That wasn't in your homework. And then, of course, the all-encompassing Titus. Uh, all kinds of passions and pleasures. So, let's look at some of these in detail. We said that uh, these acts of the flesh might be obvious to list, but much harder to recognize because we do rationalize. You know, we do justify them. And we are deceived by them. So, Again, these are some suggestions on, on ways that um, 
I imagined uh, them working and have seen them work in my own life. Uh, you might have some others that you want to make, make, uh, that you might want to make note of. Um, but I'm going to start with arrogance and folly because I didn't include those in the homework, and so I want to look at those this morning. Arrogance, the offensive display of superiority or self-importance. Do we call that maybe self-confidence or maybe assertiveness and thereby excuse ourselves? When Jesus tells us to count others more significant than yourselves, you know, this verse doesn't come with caveats. It's count others more significant than yourselves. How about folly? It's defined in the Bible as impatience, self-sufficiency, rejection of advice. And maybe we call that drive and determination. Psalm 127 tells us, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Are we too impatient to wait on the Lord? Are we too self-sufficient that we want uh, him to bless what we're doing instead of come alongside what he's doing? Are we too uh, sure of ourselves that we reject what his word has to tell us or ignore what his word has to tell us? What are we building, perhaps, in our own wisdom, in our own effort? Maybe relationships, maybe a career, maybe some aspect of our home life. What are we guarding in our own wisdom or effort? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's our time or our finances. Maybe it's our family. You know, when we seek to build and to guard because this world tells us, you know, that's what um, a self-made man is all about. You know, that's what it means, perhaps, to be independent and, um, and assertive. And we're missing out on the work that God would do, that God would have us do. You know, you've heard that, um, you've probably heard it at some point, but, you know, when you head down a path and you're off one or two degrees from your target, doesn't seem like much at first, but when you get down there, you're miles and miles and miles and miles off target. Stay on target. Let the Lord build. Let the Lord guard. How about, does your flesh have an appetite for getting in the last word? I associated this with factions. You may have come up with some different ideas there, but um, getting in the last word. We can rationalize this. The Proverbs 18 tells us a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I say ouch to that. <clears throat> How about an appetite for pointing out faults in others? Lots of ways to rationalize that, but I associated that with uh, sowing discord and malice. And I want to spend just a little time here because... We may do this, um, again, out of love. We think we're doing it out of love. But how does it make us feel? Does it make us feel better about ourselves because we've just made someone else look worse, perhaps, than they really are? Well, Scripture tells us, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasive to his lips. 
There's a lot of verses I thought about associating with this. You know, the, the one about uh, removing this, the, the log in your own eye before you try to remove the speck in someone else's. Um, but I wanted to think about this verse in particular because there are ways to say in love and in wisdom what might need to be said. And God can provide that, right? But if we're full of ourselves and our own wisdom and our own thoughts about the circumstance, you know, we'll go ahead and we'll speak our own words into a situation and justify them and rationalize them. <clears throat> How about an appetite for getting even, which I associated with hatred? When Proverbs 19 tells us it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Truly overlook it. Not pretend to overlook it, but to truly overlook it. How about stealing someone's joy, someone's credit, someone's peace? If you really want to hurt someone, go after those three things, or one of those three things. Proverbs 18 tells us, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? How about seeing yourself appear better when compared to others? And I associated this with selfish ambition. And we know from the definition in the homework that selfish ambition is seeking after your own desires at the expense of others, without regard to the interests of others. Okay, ambition by itself, not a bad thing necessarily, uh, but it's the selfish ambition that trips us up. And boy, can we be deceived by that, huh? I wanted to just spend a little bit of time here because um, sometimes this manifests itself in acts of spirit of service. You know, when does service become not about your heart toward the Lord, but about being seen to be serving? Years ago, I was in a church community that um, was pretty small, and not a lot of people stepped up to volunteer uh, to help out in the ministries. And there was one woman who had, um, who had done so and uh, had helped out in the ministry for a number of years to the point where she had created her own little fiefdom. You know, that was her ministry. She really didn't welcome newcomers. She didn't want new ideas. She didn't want new ways of doing things. Uh, she almost didn't want anyone else helping her so that she could say, look at me, look at me. You know, look how much I do. Look what I do. Obviously, if she had realized you know, the truth of that, she wouldn't have, I think she would have been appalled. But, um, but that was her flesh, right? That was her flesh, building that little mini kingdom you know, out of a ministry that was never hers to begin with. And so we need to be careful that our acts of service are not out to make us look better than someone else. There's another couple of ways that we do this. Um, and the first uh, that I've captured here is giving ourselves grace, but holding others accountable. Uh, I can't count the number of times where, uh, between my daughter and I, you know, I would say to her, that's not what I meant. You know, uh, I only meant this. I wasn't trying to hurt your feelings. You know, trust me on this. I didn't mean to forget that. I just, I, I was so distracted by some other things, and I'm so sorry. And in response to her, how many times was it, I know what you meant, 
don't tell me you didn't mean, because I know what you meant. If you were really sorry, then you would not have. You always do this. You never really care about my feelings. All the time, right? The other way we do it is what I call filling in the blanks, when we don't have all the facts. And our brains just do this. In fact, I'm not the only one who calls it this. Uh, There's a psychologist named Sarah Rehnquist who also calls it that, and she says, the ability is, of course, quite adaptive in some circumstances, like when survival depends on quick decisions about fight or flight. But like most things in life, this extraordinary tendency to fill in the blanks has a downside too. Think back on the last really bad misunderstanding. The point is, of course, that we all miss a whole lot of information much of the time because our brains are busy filling in the blanks with information extrapolated from expectations. Or by accusing a lover, a spouse, a friend, or child and reacting first without without first inquiring and getting all the relevant details. You know, how many times do we not have all the information and we just assume and let our brain assume motive, assume intent? How many times do we accuse before we ask? I'm I'm ashamed at the number of times that I've done that and, uh, and, and that I should know better. And yet, it's, it's a function of our brain, but it's something that we have to um, be able to have control over, right? I remember a work example um, for me where I was on the receiving end of this, and I was in a conversation with a guy uh, about work, and then eventually it turned to some, some personal uh, matters. And, and all of a sudden in the conversation, he looked at me and he said, I owe you an apology. And I said, well, what for? And he said, there's some things I really didn't understand about you until today, some things I didn't know. You know, and me and some other people, you know, we didn't know, and we just thought it was because... X, Y, Z, that you were, we just thought it was because you were just really ambitious and trying to get ahead. We just thought it was because, you know, you just wanted to get promoted. I was in the military. It's um, a recurring thing. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I wasn't surprised. I think I had a sense that some people thought that. But, you know, we don't, we don't always get to defend ourselves, do we? We don't always get to explain ourselves. And so for your part, for our part, when people don't get a chance to explain ourselves, we need to fill those blanks in with grace. Just grace. I don't know the answer to this. So I'm not going to assume anything. I'm not going to attribute motive. I'm not going to draw conclusions. I'm just going to give them grace. And I encourage you to practice that uh, in the coming week if, um, if you don't already. Most, if not all, of these um, acts of the flesh that we just talked about are rooted in the last of the three temptations, the pride of life. And Andrew Murray, uh, one of the authors here, he was a theologian, a pastor, a missionary, um, who wrote in the late 1800s. You're going to see a lot of his work here. He was also the father of nine children. Keep that in mind when you read his quotes. 
Um, he says, Consider how all want of love, all indifference to the needs, the feelings, the weakness of others, all sharp and hasty judgments and utterances, so often excused under the plea of being outright honest, all manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, all feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride. That ever seeks itself, and your eyes will be open to see how a dark, shall I not say a devilish pride, creeps in almost everywhere, the assemblies of the saints not accepted. Well, scripture tells us in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And this, these verses might be familiar to you as describing Satan. Satan, who was a created being, the most beautiful, we're told, of all the angels that God had created. And yet, he wanted to be equal to God. So, here is the essence of the pride of life. Anything that exalts us above our station and offers the illusion of God-like qualities wherein we boast in arrogance and worldly wisdom. Eve wanted to be like God in her knowledge, not content to live in a perfect world under his perfect grace and care for her. Satan tried the same temptation on Christ, daring him to cast himself from the roof of the temple in order to prove that he was the Messiah by an ostentatious display of power that was not in the will of God or his plan for the redemption of mankind. And quite succinctly, Pride is the root cause of strife in families, churches, and nations. You can't control your own pride. I mean, you can't control the pride of others, but uh, we are accountable for our own acts of pride. Well, what acts and appetites uh, do we have rooted in pride to exalt ourselves um, that are often disguised? How about trusting our own will and choices above God's will and statutes? You know, how many times do we know what the Word of God tells us, but we rationalize and think, I can, I can handle this, I can control this, I know right from wrong. You know, a little bit of this is okay. Proverbs 21 tells us, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord will know when your heart desires to be holy unto him, as Terry prayed this morning. How about trumpeting ourselves or seeking to be worshipped? Whether we achieve it or not, seeking after it, to be congratulated, esteemed, praised by others. I have to tell you, Facebook comes to mind when I, uh, when I think of that. Maybe Instagram these days. I'm not, I'm not all that tech savvy but, uh, on those matters. But, um, but consider how subtle it is. When scripture tells us in Matthew, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let the Lord exalt you. There's nothing wrong with praise. Um, let the Lord exalt you. There's a proverb that tells us a good reputation is to be desired more than gold or silver. But a good reputation is, is earned from a life well lived. You know, it's not obtained by grasping after it, trumpeting yourself. 
Let the Lord exalt you in due time, according to his wisdom and in his ways. How about not forgiving others? Holding them accountable to us instead of releasing them to God. You know, how many times do we say, I'm not ready to forgive? Or I don't think that person deserves forgiveness. Or I want them to stew a little while. I want them to think about what they've done. When in fact, scripture tells us, bear with each other and forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Again, no caveats. God didn't say, forgive when you're ready to forgive. Forgive when you think they're worthy of forgiveness. He said, forgive. You know, he has forgiven every sin we have not yet committed. How about claiming or grasping our rights when Jesus has called us to deny ourselves? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. On page 17 in your workbook, if you're not already there, um, this is where this begins. And uh, I elaborated a little bit on these beyond what you have in your workbook. Again, these were some of my thoughts. You might want to record some of your own. What rights do we grasp at or claim from a deceptive worldly wisdom every day through our words, our actions, our attitudes? Apart from what God has said he will do for us, apart from what God has asked of us, denying ourselves. How about the right to be happy? To pursue things that make us feel happy, that maybe God has forbidden, that maybe God is not ready for us to to receive or have in our lives. How about the right to be heard? Where we insist on having our thoughts and feelings and opinions listened to apart from what God's will and provision might be for us. There might be a time God would have us speak up, but there might be a time when God would have us be silent. But it will always depend on what's in our heart. When you think you have to defend yourself, consider, God will provide. God will be your defender. Again, he may ask you in a certain circumstance to speak up, and in another circumstance he may ask you to be silent. What is God's will? The right to say what we want, to speak things into a circumstance or relationship that gratifies our pride apart from what God would have for that particular circumstance. It can vary from circumstance to circumstance. But when we start off thinking, I have a right, we're already already in the wrong place and our heart is already not right with the Lord. Or the right to decide what's best for ourselves making choices for our lives and maybe the lives of others, apart from seeking and trusting God's will and provision. And the dreaded right to complain. I have a right to complain. Actually, we don't. We just express that dissatisfaction with a circumstance or a person. You know, we fail to recognize God's will in that situation. Um, and it reminded me because I've been reading in, in the book of Exodus in my own personal study time um, and when, when Moses uh, was leading the, the Israelites out of uh, the slavery of Egypt and across the, the desert to the promised land and the Israelites were griping and complaining I wish we were back in Egypt why did we let you bring us here 
And Moses says to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? And the Lord said to him, they're not complaining against you, Moses. They're complaining against me. You know, and unless we are suffering the consequences, the direct consequences of our own sinful actions, um, we need to trust that the circumstances we find ourselves in have come from the Lord's loving hands. He has allowed them. And to receive them with that understanding. Another of our authors, authors is Major Ian Thomas. He was an uh, officer in the British Army in World War II. Um, afterwards, he established some youth uh, missions and ministries and uh, wrote a number of books, and we'll hear from him too. He says, Fleshly Christians, in certain ways, still repudiate the Spirit's legitimate right to reestablish the rule of Christ in their minds, in their emotions, and their wills. Although they profess Christ as Redeemer, their actions and decisions are for the sake of their own interests rather than for God's interests. The devil can always persuade countless numbers of professing Christians to try and be Christians without Christ. To be carnal Christian is still to claim the right to exercise your own jurisdiction, make your own decisions and plans, choose your own pathway, but you will be useless to God. So what rights does God say we have? There's only one. As a people, as his people, there's only one. In John 1.12 he said, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave a right to become children of God. It, the right to become children of God, which is pretty amazing in itself, right? Pretty amazing when we contemplate that. Now, as his children, we actually don't have the right to complain. Philippians 2.14, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Complaining is even listed as, a, as an act of the flesh. I love that, little Lincoln. Um, the people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. Right? We've seen that, their own evil desires. That's our flesh. Now, I'm not talking about legal rights, per se. Um, there were a couple of times in Scripture when Paul, uh, through the story of Acts, talked about claiming his right as a Roman citizen to a fair trial. To not be imprisoned without just cause, or to not, you know, receive a public beating. Um, so I'm not talking about those per se. Although, you know, independently, there may be a circumstance when God tell, call, God calls you to forego, you know, your legal rights. Um, but that's not what that's not what I'm referring to specifically here. But it is countercultural, of course, in our nation that was founded on and prides itself in independence and a bill of rights. Um, but as Christians, we are called to deny ourselves, to walk humbly with God to let him be our provider, our defender, our vindicator. And Jesus is always our example. In Philippians 2, 3-5, he tells us, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ. He humbled himself. Of course, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What rights did he give up? He gave up the right to live like God. He gave up the right to act like God. He gave up the right to look like God and to be treated like God. 
And he really is asking no less than us. We are asked to give up certain rights in the way we want to live, the way we want to act, the way we might want to appear to others, and certainly the way we want to be treated. But I really like this next quote uh, by Oswald Chambers. In sanctification, the regenerated soul deliberately gives up his right to himself, to Jesus Christ, and identifies himself entirely with God's interests in other men. And I love it because he does make that, that uh, specification. It's God's interest in other men. And what do we know is God's interest in other men? That they would know him and thereby make him known. That's God's interest in other men. Do we reject the interests of others because we deem our own more important? Are we a stumbling block to others in experiencing the love and grace of God in receiving the gospel because of rights that we assert? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9 that he and Barnabas gave up their right to take along a believing wife and to get paid for preaching because they did not want to be a stumbling block. He says, we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel. So in that circumstance, in that time, the Holy Spirit impressed it upon Paul to not claim those rights that were legitimately his as a preacher of God, as a teacher, as an apostle. I'm not talking about rights as a Christian. I'm talking about his role in the Christian uh, church as a teacher. He had those rights, but he knew by the grace of the Holy Spirit, not to claim them because it would have been a hindrance to others receiving the gospel. That's denying self, to forego those rights so that others, God's interest in others, may be realized. So I think uh, this is a good time to look at what it does mean to deny self, perhaps, and what it doesn't mean. Again, putting God's interest for others ahead of yourself Letting God meet your needs. You know, we have extreme examples of those who are in persecuted um, nations and uh, they may be thrown in prison for having tried to share the gospel. They may have been beaten. And what are they called to do? They're called to bear witness to God. We're even called by Paul's example to praise God in the midst of that trial. Because God's interest in other men is that that other men would hear God being praised and might see the love and grace and truth of Christ in the life of that um, Christian. That's denying self, right? That's a little extreme. A little extreme. Let me bring it back home a little bit. Let's say you get in an argument with your your 13-year-old. Easy to do, right? That's easy for me. You know, and, and afterwards you feel bad. You feel bad and you realize, you know, I, I kind of screwed up in that. I had some blame in that. And so you decide, well, I'll, I'll bake her some cookies. I'll bake her her favorite kind of cookies and make it up to her. Well, that, that actually might be an act of the flesh. Because that's what you want to do to make yourself feel better about your behavior. Ask God, God, what would you have me do? How can I bless my daughter? How can I speak into this situation? What would you have me do? God may say, don't bake cookies. I don't want you baking cookies. I want you to sit down and spend some time with her. I want you to apologize to her. I want you to ask her forgiveness. I want you to humble yourself before her. Give her an opportunity to speak. 
So again, it depends on the situation and it depends on God's will in that situation, right? Because baking cookies is not a bad thing for your family, right? But what would God have you do in that circumstance? Are you, are you following after your own desires, the thing that's going to make you feel good? Or are you seeking after God's will? And I could give many more, but there isn't time for that. If you, if you have challenges with that particular topic, please talk about it in your groups. But here's what it's not. Deny self is not self-denial. Pastor Gary always makes this point. Self-denial is to restrain or limit for yourself things that you may need or desire. Usually it's a matter of self-discipline. Right? People may live a very austere life. Uh, think monks, you know. They may live a very austere life because uh, they want to cultivate self-discipline and they have some other ideas about things. This is not, you know, but, think, but rather think like an athlete who may deny himself, you know, a cheesecake um, because he wants to uh, perform as well as he can, you know, in the race. Or maybe you deny yourself cheesecake because you want to fit into those jeans. You know, that's self-denial. It's about self, right? It's about self-interest. You do things for your self-interest. Denying self is doing it for God's interest in others. Another thing that self-denial can trip people up with is the idea that um, they can improve their righteousness through acts of self-denial. And... um, I know someone who many years ago committed a a grievous sin, but sin is sin, right? I say that because in her mind, it's it's a grievous sin. And she cannot forgive herself, and she struggles to receive God's forgiveness because she still has a mindset that she needs to atone for it somehow. And we can't atone for it, right? Jesus already did it. Jesus already atoned for that sin. But to this day, many years later, she still practices acts of self-denial to try to make herself feel better and and to try to help herself become more righteous to the point where it's very frustrating in relationship. Maybe you've experienced that. You know, she'll do things like, um, every time, I'll take the couch. You know, if there's not enough beds to go around, I'll take the couch. You know, if there isn't a couch to go around, I'll take the chair. I'll sleep in the most uncomfortable chair. Night after night. You know, when, let's just trade off, for heaven's sakes, you know. Let's just each take a turn. Um, You get a good night's sleep, I'll get a good night's sleep. Every time, I'll take the chair. And then... Um, we were we were leaving the hospital and she said I'll take all the bags all the luggage, all the pillows everything that had accumulated over the week's time that we were there at the hospital and I'll carry it all and you know you just take mom well I've got a free hand. I can take mom here and I can carry a couple suitcases. No, 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 no. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. You know, those are acts of the flesh. It may look, you know, very self-denying. Um, it may, I mean, well, it is. It may look uh, like you're denying self. No, 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 no. I'm going to spare you 
uh, from having to carry anything or having to be put out or have any trouble and I'll just take it all on myself. But that's really an act of the flesh. That's her saying, no, 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 I'm going to do this and then I'll look, you know, perhaps pious or um, very, very, uh, unsel- uh, very selfless. I'll have the appearance of being selfless and it will make me feel better about my sin. And that's the flesh. That's how subtle it is. And I wish I could, I wish I could help her with that. And uh, it's obvious when it's my sister and I can't help her with it, but, um, but I pray for her. And I pray that God brings someone else across her path that will help make that clear. But he's patient with her. And, um, and so... It is also not self-deprecation. If you've ever heard that term or experienced that, when someone constantly verbally undervalues themselves, disparages themselves, and maybe not so verbally. And I think my sister has a little of that going on too, right? Uh, that is not self. That is not denying self. Okay, those two are not denying self. Those are really acts of the flesh, trying in your own power, your own effort to make yourself feel better about something or to achieve something that God has already achieved through Christ on the cross. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, you may have heard of her. She, uh, at 17, had a diving accident and was paralyzed from the neck down, so a quadriplegic all of her life, essentially. Um, she's a Christian author and speaker and uh, speaks into the um, disabled community and just has a, a beautiful, beautiful legacy behind her. Um, she wrote the following. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Real love is an action, a selfless, sacrificial giving. The greatest act of love anyone can perform is to give him or herself for others. Sometimes it's easier to say, I'd die for you, than it is to say, I'll live for you. Let me put your desires first. Let me think of your interests before my own. I think we would all agree that living sacrificially is a real death to self. It's a killing of your selfishness, your own desires. To die for others, to live for others, it's a gift of love that can only come from God. Why only from Him? Because it takes superhuman strength to live. I mean really live for others. I wish I could make it more complicated, but it's ever so simple. Receiving His love and then giving His love. Dying for others and living for others. That pretty much sums up the Christian walk, our purpose for being. She's getting a little ahead of me um, uh, in, our, in, our, uh, in our study, but um, that's okay because I, I wanted to um, challenge you with this. To live for others. You have a homework question about that. Think about what that means. You know, it doesn't mean forsaking all your own needs uh, and just doing everything that, that someone else needs and wants of you. Um, but remember, it's God's interest in other men. God's interest in other people. Living for someone can be as simple an act as letting an offense remain covered. Now, um, uh, there's another book I was reading recently, and I don't know if this author invented this acronym or not, so I don't know if it's copyrighted, um, but I thought I would share this with you, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll offer it out um, uh, via email to your group leaders. But she uses this word acronym TRACE, and she says TRUST others instead of trying to control them. Respect others instead of demeaning them. Appreciate another instead of criticizing. Confer confidence in another instead of doubt. Expose your own vulnerabilities instead of your own defensiveness. This can be a simple way to live for others. (coughs) 
And so, Andrew Murray again, our father of nine, let us ask whether we have learnt to regard a reproof, just or unjust, a reproach from a friend or enemy, an injury or trouble or difficulty into which others bring us, as above all an opportunity of proving Jesus is all to us, how our own pleasure or honor are nothing, and how humility is in very truth what we take pleasure in. The danger of pride is greater and nearer than we think, and the grace for humility too. So remember, our flesh desires comfort, abundance, affirmation, adoration, attention, vindication, excitation, exaltation, anything but true obedience, independence on the Lord. Slide again? I will, yeah. Okay. Um, Galatians 5.16 tells us, I say, walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so recognizing these acts of the flesh is the first step and key to walking by the spirit. And uh, as I was um, wrapping this up, it just kept coming to me and coming to me, you know, uh, is there an app for that? Wouldn't it be great if there was an app to tell you that's your flesh? You know, I don't know, you get a little zap or you get a little thing or I don't know. You count your steps for the day. You count your fleshly acts for the day. I don't know. Um, uh, I'm not aware of an app for that, but I am aware of a prayer for that. And it's Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Um, uh, Pastor Brian Broderson of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, today said, "How d- this is not a joke, by the way, how do you get darkness out of a room? You can't talk it out. You can't push it out. You turn on the light. You need the light of Christ to expose any darkness that remains in your soul. So let it be God that searches you and not yourself. We are his workmanship. Let it be his light that shines to reveal what has been easy to overlook in your darkness. And avoid an inward focus on self and just look to him. Mm-hmm. So in summary, the sinful desires of our flesh are often very subtle and deceiving us into thinking we aren't acting apart from God's will for us, but all the while robbing us of experiencing the abundant life in Christ. <coughs> that pride in all its manifestations is at the root of all strife among men. And denying ourselves, denying self, is to put the will of God in the interests of others ahead of our own living in full dependence on all of his provision for our lives and his goodness toward us. 